This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In today's episode, we will be discussing charges that were brought against Jack Walls in 1993 by a boy named Doug Hogan, who was 16 years old at the time. This case happened four years before Barbara, Joe, and Heather Stocks were killed in their own home. It not only presented an opportunity to put a stop to Jack's abuse, but in doing so could have prevented the tragedies that were to come. We will be hearing again from Charles Peckett, Betty Dickey, Heath Stocks, as well as Chris Hutchins, another Boy Scout troop member who was present the night of this incident. We reached out to Doug Hogan, but he wasn't available for an interview at this time. We did speak with him, however, and we were able to get an understanding of what he and his family went through during this time. Doug Hogan was a member of the Boy Scout troop in the town adjacent to Lone Oak. He wasn't a member of Jack's troop, but they did a lot of things together at certain times, such as campouts, for example. And Jack actually ended up combining the troops at a later date. So you had the troop that Heath was in, and now this troop that Doug was in. Doug's dad, Cletus, was a man of faith who fought for justice. He worked with the Boy Scouts for many years as well, and was also the owner and operator of Hogan's TV and Satellite Service in Carlisle, Arkansas. By all accounts, Doug and Cletus had a very good relationship. They were close, as a father and son could be. Like you mentioned, Cletus was involved in the Boy Scouts. He was an attentive father, and I remember one of the documents I read referred to him even as Doug's friend. They were not only father-son, but they were also friends. To get started, we're going to read a statement that Doug Hogan gave to the police after the incident occurred. On December 29, 1992, there was an outing on the Jack Walls farm, south of Lone Oak, just off Highway 31. This was supposed to be a get-acquainted outing for the Philmont, New Mexico trip, there was supposed to be several boys my age there. Jack Walls was the one who invited me to this. He told me to come alone and not bring anyone with me. I decided to take Chris Houchins with me. Jack Walls has specifically told me not to bring Chris with me. We got there about 4 p.m., 12 92 We discovered that Chris and I were the only ones in our age group there. Jack kept telling us that there were going to be more boys our age from Lone Oak, that they were coming, but they never showed up. Everyone went to bed except me, Chris, and Jack. The other scoutmaster was at the campfire. Me, Chris, and Jack were sitting in the back of my Chevy panel truck with the back doors open. Jack asked us if we wanted some wine. I said whatever, and Chris said no. Jack left and returned with the wine. He picked up my coffee cup and poured the wine in it. Jack gave it to me, and I set it on top of my truck. I didn't drink it. I finally poured it out about 15 or 20 minutes later. Jack thought I drank it. I found this out later that night. Everyone was in bed around 1.30 a.m. December 30th, 1992. Jack made this one boy go to bed about 1.45 a.m. This only left me and Jack Walls awake. Jack told me to lay back and take it easy. He asked me who I was thinking about that night. This time, we were at the campfire. I told him nobody in particular. Jack lay beside me, with his feet toward my head and my feet toward his head. Jack started unbuckling my belt. I told him to stop. Jack said, I thought we were going to jack off. I said, no, that wasn't my thing. Jack said, well, how about me? I said, no. Jack said, well, it's bedtime then. During this time, 
Jack didn't seem to be scared of getting caught. He was calm. I got up and I walked to my truck. I sat in the truck for maybe 20 minutes. I decided to tell Chris what had happened. Chris didn't believe me. I said, all right, I'll tell Mark. I woke up Mark and I told him what happened. Mark said I should leave. Mark gave me his stepdad's phone number for me to call to come get him. Mark told me that Jack had a gun in his truck and that he was afraid to spend the night. Knowing what Jack had tried to do with me, I started the truck and started to leave. Jack jerked the door open and told us we were not going to leave. Jack said we needed to talk. I said enough has been said. Jack said he wanted Chris and Mark to know what had happened. I said they already knew. Jack said, I want them to hear my side. Jack took us back to the campfire. He told the same story that I had told, but denied that he had put his hands on me. Jack would not let us sleep. He spent the rest of the night walking back and forth from the fire to his truck. I was scared that he was going to remove the gun from his truck and shoot one of us if we attempted to leave the campsite. So one of the things that stands out to me when we're reading Doug's statement is... It's clearly following the pattern that we discussed in the last episode of Jack giving the boys alcohol, making sure that their cup stayed filled, because Doug is talking about how Jack gave him wine and he didn't drink it. He dumped it out. But Jack didn't know that. He was clearly keeping an eye on Doug and the alcohol, but not close enough because he thought that Doug was drinking it. That had to be surprising for Jack to be shut down by Doug. Oh, yeah. You know, when we read Doug's statement and he talks about Jack pacing back and forth between the fire and the truck, I can picture that in my head. You have to think Jack is probably pacing because he does not know what to do with this situation. To me, it seems like he's immediately cooking up a plan. How am I going to talk myself out of this? What do I need to say to make it seem like whatever Doug's going to accuse me of is not really what happened? And, you know, the same thing with Jack that he uses with all these boys is it always seems like he's trying to stay one step ahead and calculating and planning. And when he's trying to get the boys to come back and talk and hear his side of the story, he obviously has come up with some sort of little sinister plan. Mm -hmm. Let me get my narrative out there. Let me tell them that's not really what happened. And I think right away this whole who are they going to believe thing is coming into play. It's interesting that you say the whole who are they going to believe, because in the last episode, we talked about how he had been building his little militia of boys. So he was building his group to back him up. And he's already putting into place two witnesses and Chris and Mark who can vouch for him and say, we heard Jack's side. This is what he told us the night it happened and stand up for him. Be his defense. As we dug through all the facts of this case and all the documents and everything that went along with it, we did come across an article in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette from March 14th, 1997. And there's an interesting part of this because it does talk about that night. They interview an unnamed boy who talks about how earlier in that night, Jack had given him alcohol, then said, let's take a walk. They went to the to the woods. Jack had given him books, including one that was titled The Girl from S.E.X. So he read the book with the light of his lantern in his tent. And then in the article, the boy says that he came and got me. I dreaded it. I knew what was going to happen. He took me down to an old broken down school bus parked on the farm and he raped me when we got there. 
And this boy says that this is one of the 150 times that he estimates that Jack had assaulted him. So before he even tried with Doug, he had already raped another boy. And then everyone goes to bed. And then he said, come over here, Doug. That's something that we've read on a couple of different occasions as well, that it just seemed like Jack was insatiable. Like he was always ready to go, even if there had just been another incident. It's clear that he was just obsessed with this, obsessed with sex with young boys. And this is something that has spanned 30-year time period. And so you have someone that for 30 years is raping multiple boys multiple times a day. Across multiple counties. And he's married and has three daughters and a full-time job. But he definitely always makes sure that he has time to be the scoutmaster. The boy also says that Jack had raped him at the farm, at his house, at a shed at his house, and even in the boy's own house. He said, Jack used to crawl through the window after my family went to bed and rape me. But on that night, as on many other nights, that wasn't enough for Jack. Just one quick thing about that statement from that article. Just when I read it, it makes me so sad to think of that little boy laying in his bed where you're supposed to be safe. You're at home. And he probably went to bed every night, scared about when the window was going to open. And he couldn't tell his parents. And when you say that, I always think back to what Charles Peckett said in his interview, where the boys couldn't tell their parents. Their parents loved Jack. They literally had nowhere to go. What a helpless feeling. Because when you're little, like think back to when you're little and you had your bedroom and your bedroom was your safe haven. Anything happened... I mean, for me, at least, I went straight to my bedroom because that was my safe place. Mm -hmm. Your place to get away from it all, your place to unwind, relax. And then to go into your bedroom and know that any night that window could creak open. He's like Freddy Krueger. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That, that is exactly what it reminds me of because I've heard other stories told how he would crawl through their windows. And you're in your bedroom, you're in your bed, you're sleeping, you're safe. And in comes this monster into your dreams. But unfortunately, it wasn't dreams. It was their reality. Worse than a nightmare. The following statement was given by Doug's friend, Mark, who was there that night. This was given on August 27, 1993. Mark says, This was supposed to be a Lone Oak Troop campout. Jack Wallace III invited Doug and Chris from the Carlisle Group. We all stayed up late. I finally went to bed. Doug, Chris, and Jack were still up. I heard someone walking behind my tent, but I didn't check on who it was. Later, when Doug woke me up, he said it was him, that Jack had given him some wine and that he had poured it out in the ditch behind my tent. Doug and Chris came to my tent and got me. I hadn't gone to sleep. Doug told me that he and Jack were lying by the campfire he said that Jack had tried to undo his belt and jack him off. When Doug told him no, Jack asked him to jack him off. Doug wanted to leave. The three of us went to Doug's truck. Doug started to start his truck. Then Jack came over to the truck, and I backed off. Doug had already told us that when he left Jack at the campfire, Jack walked over to his truck. We all knew that Jack had a pistol in his truck. Jack took all three of us to the campfire. He said, let's talk about this. Jack asked Chris, what would you have done if you were in Doug's place? Chris said something, but I didn't understand or hear what. 
Jack asked me what I would do. I said I would have overreacted. There's no telling what I would have done. Jack didn't physically prevent us from leaving. Jack said he was playing when he did it to Doug. He said he did it, but he was only playing. So when we're reading through those statements, you can tell they really are lining up. They're saying the same things in the same order of what happened after Doug went off and told Chris and Mark what happened, that Jack came and got them, brought them back to the campfire, had them all sit down so Jack could say his side of the story. We reached out to Chris and were able to sit down with him and talk about what he remembered from that night all these years later. I'm Chris Halchins. I'm from Carlisle, Arkansas. When we were in elementary and we went to a meeting and I got in as a Cub Scout. I was an Eagle Scout, so I went all the way through. I loved it. I mean, honestly, even to this day, I have good memories and good thoughts about scouting because it's given me a lot of the, the values, a lot of the things that uh, I know for problem solving. It's just, it's, it, there's a lot of great skills to learn, but there's also a lot of dangers to avoid too, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. I don't remember the first time I met Jack other than just through scout, uh, scouting events. I remember that he was uh, the Lone Oak Scoutmaster or Scout Leader and that he was looked up to by a lot of the other scouts and he was a man of the year, a deacon in the church, he was the son of a prominent judge, he was all these things I mean, uh, that everybody would want the good guy in town to be. The night we went to the scout camp was on the Walls Farm in Lone Oak. We uh, stayed out there and I can't remember all the boys that were there except for it was Jack, Doug, myself and Mark that were sitting at the campfire after the incident with with Jack. Supposedly, uh, well, not supposedly, I mean, I, I believe Doug's story. Jack tried to tug at Doug's pants and undo his belt, and it made him really uncomfortable, and I can see him saying some of the things that Jack was accusing him of. But it, it was inappropriate what Jack was doing, but Jack explained it away very easily because Jack always talked to us about any topic. There was nothing that was taboo or off limits. I mean, masturbation or talking about things that, uh, with girls or, you know, we could always ask Jack something and he would answer the question and you weren't afraid to ask him because he wasn't going to get on to you for whatever type of language you used or, or how you approached him. He was just going to be open with you and answer the question. The incident happened, Doug came back to the panel wagon truck that he and I were going to sleep in that night of his dad's. And I was in the truck whenever everything went on with, with um, Doug and Jack. He came and told me what was going on. And I'm, I was like, I, there's just got to be some misunderstanding. We just need to, to figure this out. And Doug wanted to leave that night. Jack came over and, and was asking us, you know, what's going on? And why are we leaving? And, you know, can't we just talk about this? Which I agreed with. Let's go talk about this. So we all went and sat around the campfire. The way I remember is I was kind of mediating between Doug and Jack. And then Mark was more of a... I don't remember Mark really interacting so much there. I think if, if anything, he was just maybe more of a spectator listening to what was going on. I'd already heard Doug's side of the story. And 
he told Jack that he had scared him and Jack was trying to explain to him that I was just trying to figure out what was going on and uh, with you earlier and trying to get in your head and see what you're thinking and things like that, which to me sounded pretty normal if you're a mentor that we're all used to talking to and it just didn't seem out of the ordinary because as teenagers you're, you're doing foolish stuff. You're using what are derogatory terms then and now, but we didn't really see them as derogatory back then. Then we just used terms. And there were homosexuality terms that we would use against each other, and Jack would chime in and stuff like that too. So whenever he starts talking about tugging at your pants or something like that, he could explain it away as just, well, I was just messing with him. I wasn't really trying to molest him. It was just you guys are always grabbing and, you know, poking and messing and whatever. So he could easily make it appear innocent, like he was just one of us. So we talked that through and ended up staying the rest of the night and left the next morning. And at that point, where Doug and I kind of started going in, in opposite directions because I was believing Jack's side of the story and Doug was telling this other story, which he started mouthing about me around town and which is, we ended up in a fight at one point. For me, it just in my mind, it seemed like Jack just being Jack. Did Jack have a gun with him? I don't know. Did you ever see Jack fire guns before? Yes. I have a forty-five pistol to this day that uh, I chose because we went out to uh, the Walls Farm. Jack took a 9 millimeter, a three fifty-seven, and a forty-five pistol and let me shoot all three of those that day. And that's when I chose my first pistol that my grandfather ended up buying me, and it was a forty-five. What did you think when you first found out about the charges? It was BS that Jack didn't do it and he wouldn't do it. I mean, you can, that's evident in the court case that, you know, we all stood up for Jack. Um, at the time, I didn't know that I was standing next to people that were being molested by him, defending him, but I defended him nonetheless. Did you talk to Doug after the charges were brought against Jack? Uh, not pleasantly, I don't think. We didn't really see eye to eye on the charges, and I was defending Jack. I was on Jack's side. I believed him, and I was more than willing to defend him without even being asked. I am aware of what he asked others from stories, but he never specifically asked me to do anything. But he did. He made his dislike for the Hogan family known. And because I didn't like Doug because of the situation with him mouthing about me, I was more than willing to drive along in a vehicle with someone that was mad at Doug and wanting to go find him and fight him. The next morning after the camp out, everybody woke up, everybody went home, and Doug told his dad exactly what had happened between Jack and him. And Cletus, you know, with the relationship being so strong and and him having been so involved in the scouts as well, he didn't take that well. So he immediately reached out to Jack, who of course denied everything and tried to make it look like that didn't happen. He had only been trying to offer him alcohol. Jack ended up writing a letter to Cletus, apologizing for the incident, but in it he didn't lay out any specifics for what he was apologizing for. This is what that letter said. 
It's dated 12-31-92. Cletus, I want to apologize to all of you for the incident at Camp Tuesday night. It showed a flaw in my character that must be corrected, and I must begin to do that immediately. There is a great amount of trust placed in a man who works with young people as I did, and I violated it. I am ashamed of this, as I have let everyone down from the scouts through my own family. It is now up to me to change my life. As of Tuesday, I will have resigned from my positions with the scouts and will exempt myself from future scout activities. I will turn over the Philmon account to one of the other advisors as soon as I can find one to take it. So when we're listening to that letter that Jack wrote to Cletus, he is apologizing, but he's not specifically stating what he's apologizing for. It's just a very general apology letter. And it's clearly something that Jack planned. He wanted it to be that way. He didn't want to implicate himself in anything. And that's something that's supported in statements made by Heath Stocks. He had me read the letter that he wrote to uh, Hogan's father, Cletus, uh, and asking if he had, it seemed like he was insinuating anything. There were times when, uh, you know, he talked about that and how people were, you know, making up this stuff, all these bad things about him. But when he did that kind of thing, he would say that, you know, they're making it up about us. You know what I mean? And it would seem like it was, it wasn't just him. They were saying about us too. So I couldn't defend me without defending him. So he always created this us against them. It was always, a, you know, a, a group mentality. And it, it made it very hard to separate, you know, if they're talking about him, they're talking about us. They're talking about us, they're talking about him. And um, that was just another layer of the confusion. That was part of uh, the manipulation of, uh, I mean, even what happened to me, you know, realizing now that, you know, he played on all that. They're going to take me away from you. They're going to hurt me. You did this. You, you, you caused this. After that night, Doug came home and told his father Cletus what had happened with Jack. And Cletus was upset, rightfully so. So we're going to walk through a timeline of events that happened after Doug told his father. So when he got home, told his dad, then Cletus contacted Walls and demanded that he resign from the scouts immediately. Meanwhile, Mark's stepmother reported the incident to the Department of Human Services, Child Abuse Hotline, and to the Lone Oak County Sheriff's Office. That happened on December 30th, 1992. There's a law called Act 1208 of 1991, which requires 72 hours they have 72 hours to interview the victim after it happens. On January 4th, Cletus reported the incident to Jeffrey Herman, who was an executive with the Boy Scouts. That next day, Herman notified Walls that they were terminating their relationship with him. Jim Rainbolt, who was a criminal investigator with the Arkansas State Police, interviewed Doug, but then ended up labeling that file as false imprisonment. On July 28, 1993, Rainbolt then interviewed Jack Walls, who claimed that he only hit Hogan on the belt buckle with the back of his hand. It was three weeks later then that Rainbolt interviewed Mark and Chris. On October 8, 1993, Rainbolt closed his investigation. He stated that Larry Cook had determined that the actions of Jack Walls in this case did not constitute a crime. On November 18, 1993, Cletus talked 
Judge Gary Rogers of Carlisle into signing two warrants against Jack Walls on charges of contributing to the delinquency of a minor and third-degree assault, both misdemeanors. On November 22nd, Jack is arrested on those charges. The following day, after discussing the matter, Rainbolt and Murphy determined that no abuse took place, nor intended, and closed the file on the case. On November 30th, a copy of the confidential file was released to a person listed only as Walls. This file has never been accounted for. On April 8, 1994, following a three-hour trial, which included character witnesses, such as a former state representative, Bill Fletcher, other pillars of the community, and boy after boy testifying on behalf of Jack Walls, he is found innocent on all charges. He stocks testified. I think Wade testified. That was part of that small group that he had in the Boy Scouts. Why do you think they testified on his behalf when they were victims themselves? They were influenced by him, and they were scared of him, too. I really believe they were, they were afraid of him, and they were influenced by him. I mean, he would show them the dynamite, the, the guns. He carried a gun with him. I understand he carried a, a pistol with him all the time, every place that he went. These young kids were scared of him, but they were going to do what he told them to do. So let's talk about that trial just a little bit, because there are some very questionable and interesting, to put it mildly, things that happen surrounding that trial. For example, you have the most obvious who Jack's father is. Judge Walls. There's actually an interview from 1999 where Cletus Hogan said, you'll never convince me that it wasn't the Walls' power and money that kept Jack out of trouble. I don't doubt that because, you know, the the trial was held in Carlisle, Arkansas, which we've also discussed that Judge Walls worked as an attorney in that city. So he had friends in high places. He got a lot of people to testify for him that were respectable people. He had them in his clinch, just like he had these kids in his clinch. He just was able to do that. I think his dad had something to do with it and that his dad was a judge. Not that his dad had something to do with what Jack was doing. He didn't have anything to do with that. But his dad was a judge. So that was somebody with some power that people respected. And, and he was a respected judge. He, you know, his dad was a respected judge in town. And in addition to that, he had his group that were ready and willing to testify on his behalf. Yeah, we know five boys in total testified on Jack's behalf. We know three of them were Heath Stocks, Wade Knox, and Chris. And that just shows, again, the level of control that he had over these boys, because you have one boy who was brave enough. I mean, that has to be seriously a hard thing to do, to come forward when you know the town loves this man. You've seen him in action. You know what he's capable of. You know he has guns. You know he has a, a group of boys that will do anything for him. But yet still, Doug came forward and told his story, knowing what that could do. And then for his peers to get up on that stand and call him a liar, basically, and go against everything that he is claiming happened. And not only his peers, several adults who got up there as well and stood behind Jack and 
testified on his behalf. And there have been interviews that I've seen with some of those adults, and they've just said they didn't know. They didn't know any better. They believed Jack. They didn't know the Hogans. They thought Jack was telling the truth. And to me, if you're an adult and someone you don't know says, oh, hey, this person that you do know did this horrific thing to me, I don't know. It just seems a little weird to say, oh, I I don't know you, so I'm not even going to entertain the thought that that could be true. Just blindly follow Jack and fall in line, do what he says, do what he's asking, and protect him. Well, because if they admitted that maybe we should look into this, maybe Jack is doing something wrong, then that opens a whole can of worms about what they've been doing potentially wrong all this time, not questioning things. Because I guarantee you this isn't the first time that Jack has had to be gotten out of a pickle. It's funny you said that because he seemed very prepared. He knew what to do. He knew what to say. He knew, you know, who to get on his side. And there's actually a document that we have as well. So this document is signed by Charles Pickett, and it states, On October 7th, 1997, a young boy who we will refer to as Adam called this office and advised that he has some paperback books and a black vinyl case. He said that he would come by the police department this evening and turn the books over to me. He stated that Jack Walls gave him the books in 1993 because he thought the state police were going to run a search warrant on his house. He said that Jack had asked him about the books a couple of times over the last four years. In 93, Jack has him hold on to these books. And these books were the books that we referred to earlier. The Hungry Sister, The Scout Master's Mom, mm-hmm. those type of books. And so Jack had the wherewithal to hurry up and hide his books with one of his trusted scouts. Which, if you think about it, how gross that he has a boy hide his dirty paperback books, just throw them away. Like, if you don't want to get caught with them, Jack, throw them away. But no, they meant that much to him, and he had that much control, that he just has this guy hold on to his books for him while he goes through this incident, as he refers to. So after Jack is acquitted, then it is all-out war on the Hogan family. He's got the boys trained on all of these weapons, And they are following Jack. They are protecting him. And Jack is telling them, you've got to stand up for me. We've got to hurt the Hogans. Jack is also telling these boys that Doug is running around town saying things like all of their sisters are whores, saying things like they're all gay, they're all homosexuals, Jack's a homosexual, anybody who supports him is a homosexual, And so you've got to think about that, too, because it is early 90s in Arkansas, small town. That is a big deal to be called a homosexual, to be for people to think that you're gay or to call your sister a whore. Mm -hmm. Jack was hell bent on revenge. He had the Hogan's number and he was coming for him. And so these boys didn't hesitate. They were following the Hogan's. They were threatening them, harassing them. After the Hogan ordeal, he told all of us that Doug was running around calling all our sisters whores and calling us all homosexuals and said, you know, we need to do something about that. What were we going to do when everybody uh, started calling us homosexuals at school and, you know, people wanted to sleep with our sisters and 
you know, he was saying something that he knew would target uh, fears or, you know, insecurities that we had based on, you know, so he knew what was happening was wrong and he knew what buttons to push. With my dad, you know, he knew the history about how my dad felt about homosexuals. He knew about sh- shaming the family name. How would my dad see me? What would he do? Uh, what would my friends think? Jack gave these boys the Hogan's license plate numbers and had them follow them, report back to him where they were going, what they were doing. So he knew every move they were making at all times. Jack even told the boys that he would pay them if they could hurt Doug or Cletus. And they were all about it because anything against Jack was against them because they were Jack's boys. Some of the stuff that he asked them to do, things like shoot them, cut their brake lines. Jack had a thing where he actually wanted Cletus Hogan to be set on fire and watch him burn. They were supposed to kill Doug and his father. They were supposed to kill both of them. Uh, either either set their truck on fire, supposed to shoot him, and set his truck on fire. They were supposed to kill him. They followed him around and would give Jack reports on where where they were going and stuff like that. Can you imagine what that was like? Because small towns, everyone talks. Everyone knows each other. And I just think, to put myself in Doug's place, which there's no way I could ever put myself in Doug's place to fully know what, what that was like, but you got to go to school still. You have to deal with this stuff. And you know that around every corner, one of Jack's boys might be waiting for you. Yeah, constantly looking over your shoulder. And like you said earlier, Doug had already gone through a traumatic experience the night of the incident and worked up the courage to say what had happened. And Basically, his punishment for all of that, for trying to stand up and tell the truth, is they're shunned by the community. Nobody believes them. Everybody's against them. And on top of that now, they've got to look over their shoulder constantly. So jumping back to Heath's victim impact statement and what he said about the Hogans and everything that Jack had said, Heath said that he gave me a list of all their license plates and all their cars, places that Doug hung out, places that he went. And he said that it's because Jack told these boys that the Hogans were going to hurt him. So one of the things that stood out to me when you were just reading that is Heath was arrested in 1997. Everything with the Hogans started back in 1993. So that just really puts it into perspective. That's four years that the Hogans are being put through this, this harassment and terrorization. They're being put through that. And at the same time, this also shows the level of control that Jack had over those boys. Brainwashing and manipulation and blind loyalty. Which is exactly what Jack wanted. If you really think about it, the Hogans never really got justice for what happened to Doug and for what they were put through afterwards. Because... So many different times there was talk of bringing these charges against Jack, solicitation for murder and all of that. They were never actually brought against him. Justice still wasn't served. Not for the Hogans at all. And you have to think, they were completely ostracized in this town. And these boys and adults lied about them on the stand. And then Jack is acquitted. 
He's acquitted, and for the next four years, the Hogans have to watch him just live his life as he was before with no consequences. And he's right back in his role, going on campouts and full access to countless boys. I really feel like from everything we've read and listened to and and the people we've talked to, it didn't slow him down. It just intensified his violence. And I, I really believe it took it to like a whole new level. They don't want to believe that Jack is as bad as the Hogan's say he is because they've dealt with him. So they testify for Jack. After all you naive, God-fearing, thinking you got to forgive and forget, I don't have a duty to forgive Jack Walls. My duty as a prosecutor to show the world what he did. In the next episode, we will be discussing the abuse, manipulation, and brainwashing that Heath Stocks was subjected to by Jack Walls from the time he was nine years old up until the murder of his family when he was 20. How far will Jack go to stay involved with the Boy Scouts? How does Jack pinpoint Heath's vulnerabilities and use them to his advantage? And what was it about Heath that made him Jack's finest creation? Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.